You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. This week we have a special guest, Phil Copeman, author of... Uh, how safe is safe enough? Uh, he was a uh, former submarine officer. He is the internationally recognized expert on autonomous vehicles. He's got over 25 years experience in that. And he is a professor, associate professor of electrical and computer engineering at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I know that's the, the one minute introduction of your background. If there's anything you want to add, please feel free. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, I think the one thing I'd add more specifically is I've been doing self-driving car safety or autonomous vehicle safety, as we call it now, for more than 25 years. So I've been at this game a long time. Wow. So we read your book, How Safe is Safe Enough. And um, before you joined us, Michael and I were talking briefly and saying how uh, it was like the first academic type book that we've read in a long time that was like, wow, this was really engaging. And it didn't feel like a, a kind of stiff academic tome. It was it was completely accessible. It was great. It was it was really fascinating. Um, so we well, really enjoyed that. So well, I, thanks for that. I, I cheated by it. it's not the tone is definitely not academic. There's you know come come for the for the heavy weighty text and stay for the snarky footnotes, right? But <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make it engaging because the the audience is not other academics. The audience is a lot of other folks. Right. And so I guess my first question is, um, so <laughs> I, I've been told my my self-driving car is ready and it's ready to go and it's been ready to go for the last decade. Um, that's not true, is it? <laughs> How far off is this? Nobody really knows. <laughs> that's, the, that's the truth. They, well, first of all, let me unpack that a little bit and, and see, since I am an academic, I'll sometimes slice apart some words, but it turns out words matter in these things. Self-driving uh, means everything and nothing all at once, right? And, right. And, and the marketing has just rubber banded it around. It's, it's hard to say what it means, uh, and, and it depends on the context. So I the, the title is Autonomous Vehicles because that actually has a, has a pretty well-defined meaning in safety standards. And so to begin with, the scope is cars that drive themselves, or some like to say you can go to sleep in the back and wake up every single time still alive, right? That's right. that's the kind of tar. And by, by the way, when I said Starkey, you know, it's stuff like this. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So that, that's what I'm looking forward to. I can get, yeah. I can hail a driverless car, fall asleep in it, wake up hours later at my destination, fully bathed, dressed, shaved, ready. Well, I don't know about the end parts, but you can you can sleep and wake up every single time. Uh, and, and those cars are out there now. Uh, you know, they're finally sort of out there, but they're incredibly limited. And people say that it takes more cars to drive one of them and then a regular taxi because of all the prep and the remote support and all the other things that are going on. So there's a very few places in the world where you can get in a car, there's nobody in the front seat, and there's nobody remotely driving it, you know, using a steering wheel and, and, and a cell phone data link, right? It actually is driving itself, but it's in extremely limited geographic areas. It's in very limited conditions. Uh, it still struggles a lot. It still needs to phone home for help. And there's service, there's chase cars out there. So if something goes wrong, somebody shows up to fix the problem. Uh, so it's it's a very, very um, limited uh, sort of very you know, trial early phase kind of thing. And that's where we are uh, after 
20 years or so, 25 years. This is, uh, you know, it's been that long since this stuff has been going around the U.S. It's taken a long time. Right. We were talking about the example last week with the uh, GM cruise in San Francisco, where I think it was available for one day, only from the hours of 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. If the weather conditions were absolutely perfect, there was no fog in San Francisco. Not sure how that's possible. Uh, and it, <laughs> I've lived in the Bay yeah, Area. Yeah. Well, at night, it may, maybe at night, not in the morning for sure. Right. right. <laughs> but, I, you know, it, it, it failed because uh, a driver at a at the intersection across from it decided to juke and and go uh, left and then right and whatnot, and the car just like ah and gave up on itself. Um, it, it it's absolutely fascinating that I I, w- I can't understand who would actually hail a driverless cab at this point. Um, well, pe- people love the novelty, right? You know, there's <laughs> yeah. that, and and okay, fine, uh, and this this technology might might i use the word might this is important someday improve road safety and provide a lot of equity benefits and all those things the promises are there but the technology is not there yet it's getting the point you can have these pilot deployments you can have these demonstrations they're you know they're all basically extended demonstrations proof of concept that's great but people who think oh yeah next year it'll all be solved it's it's not going to happen next year it's it's been, well, I, I, I mentioned before, 25 years. So in 1995, uh, Carnegie Mellon University uh, vehicle, and this is just before I got involved, I got involved right after this, went from Washington, D.C. to San Diego, 98% hands off the wheel in 1995 on highways, okay? And it was basically following the lines in the road. And when, when there weren't lines, it turned out you could follow the, the, um, the wear marks from the previous vehicles in the concrete and the, I don't know, the oil spill stains or whatever, you know, it was just saying, hey, look, there's something that looks like a straight line on a road, let's follow it. And the the times it got into trouble were it was fond of taking off ramps because the lines in the off ramps were less worn than the lines in the main road. Okay, that makes sense. And in bright lights, bright sunlight, when you ran under a bridge, the auto contrast went nuts and it just didn't know what was going on until it recovered. Uh, you know, those are the main failure modes. And, you know, it was great stuff, but very limited. And and and, and it, just to be fair, it was steering only, but steering's the hard part, right? Adaptive cruise control is no big deal. It's steering that's the hard part. But that was at 95. And ever since, we've been working on that last 2%. And and it's really hard. Right. <laughs> it turns out it's really hard. So when people say, oh, yeah, it, you know, we're still struggling this year, but next year for sure, well, from one car company, we've heard that every year for many years, right? But it's just it's just unrealistic to say you're going to have a car that does everywhere, everything, all the time, you know, anytime soon. Uh, but they are making progress. I don't. They for sure are making progress. But and is the this catch with the, safety? Go, go ahead, Fred. I'm sorry. Is this one of those situations where the horizon keeps receding? You know, it's it's like fusion energy has been like that. It's been right around the corner for the last what fifty years, and. And uh, the feeling I've got about this is that as you push the horizon, because, you know, we, we're working on that last 2%, that last half percent, whatever, you run into an infinite series and the horizon just keeps moving forward because the, the, the universe of things that people consider just keeps expanding. I, I understand and appreciate the analogy. I've, I've thought of that one on occasion. Not that I'm an expert in fusion, but it feels a little different to me in that um, there, they're trying to get to the ability to generate more heat than they put energy than they put in, and then maybe they're there now, you know, there. But but this stuff, 
the proof of concept, you know, the car driving itself, 25 years ago, the car was driving itself. So it wasn't, a, well, can we even do it at all? Yeah, yeah we can do it. <clears throat> and the issue isn't, is, um, is that safety is fundamentally different than uh, functionality. So the catch is that if you drive a million miles and have no, no serious crash, that sounds really impressive, right? Clearly, if you can go a million miles without killing anyone, you're, you know how to drive on a road. But the bar is set 100 times, 200 times, 300 times more safe than that. You know, even including all the drunks, it's a fatal crash every 100 million miles. That's a lot of miles. You know, 900, you go 99,999,999 miles without killing anyone. And then the next mile you do, you know, that was a lot of boring miles before the bad thing happened. So safety is a numbers game about all the rare exceptional cases. Uh, so it's different in fusion in that point, Fred, because in fusion, it's about getting it to the point you can generate the generate. And again, I'm not an expert at that, but you know, you need to be able to generate the hot mass and hold it for long enough to put out energy. And once you're there, you're there. This one, you can be there for tens of millions of miles and everything looks fine. And then something pops up you didn't even think about that wasn't in the model. And that's it. You know, start again. Sure. Well, there's another sense in which the horizon keeps receding, which is that most of the discussion I've heard uh, is about making the self-driving vehicles, the autonomous vehicles, however you want to refer to them, as safe as a human driver, whatever that what, means. Whatever that means. Well, whatever there's a whole book means, about right? that, right? <laughs> right. So, the, so the, but the question that arises is, well, would we ever be happy if automated machines were killing 40,000 people a year. Uh, to me, that seems like a um, a bar that it would never be accepted for machinery and probably shouldn't be accepted for machinery. So in that sense, as we get closer to the idea or the, the actuality of autonomous vehicles being as safe as a human driver, again, whatever the hell that means, um, the standards likely to change because somehow the idea of accidents being caused by human beings is acceptable. We we all go on about our lives. All this slaughter on the highways is continuing to happen. But to have that being done automatically by machinery seems like a wholly different approach and one that would be really unacceptable to everybody, certainly to me. Yeah, I understand. That makes sense. One of the things I did in the book, uh, I, I learned a lot writing the book, you always do, is, is I looked up some European product safety standards and decided that cars would be completely unsafe as consumer products if there were anything other than a car. That analysis is in the book. Uh, just way, way, way too unsafe for consumer product. And, and when I say that, it kind of makes sense because toasters don't kill 40,000 people a year. You know, it's just not what you expect to have happen. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I get that. The, uh, the way I look at it is that you've got these things that are, uh, that people are dying on, on the roads and it's tragic. By the way, human drivers are actually very safe. The 40,000 people is not because people are as unsafe as they're made out to be. It's because there are that many miles and the numbers just catch up with you. You know, people are, are incredibly good compared to what it's going to take for a computer to get to do this stuff. But if you were to computerize all those deaths, which is, which is the essence of your question, there would be some pushback, but it, it's hard to say how that's going to turn out. 
you know, people said, well, yeah, 40,000 are dying now, but 40,000 used to die, and now we don't have to drive ourselves. Maybe, maybe people would be okay with that. You know, it's, that's a hard call for a technologist to make. But what I can point out is that the deaths are likely to be different, and that's where the problem's going to be. You know, maybe we're willing to accept the same number, but we're going to have trouble when uh, there are identifiable patterns in who's dying and they're different than happened today. So as a, as a purely hypothetical example, let's say the number goes from 40,000 to 30,000, but every single death is a, is a pedestrian. That's not going to, that's not going to work, right? No one's going to put up with that because now you have people dying who wouldn't have died before and that's going to be a bigger problem. Uh, or, or what if it's, um, uh, now th this is, this is put out by some people as fact and, and it wasn't actually in the paper. So we have to be careful, but for sure, machine learning based vision systems can struggle with people with darker skin, skin tones. Now, there was a paper saying self-driving cars had that problem. And that's actually not true. That was, if you read the paper, it just speculates that it, there's no finding, but it would be no surprise if that's a problem. I would be completely unsurprised because we know this is a failure mode of the systems, even if they're not properly trained. So what if everyone, all the fatalities had darker skin color? That's going to be a problem too. Or, or, or all of it was lighter skin color. It doesn't matter if you pick out people who are identifiable as a demographic group and all of a sudden their mortality rate doubles, no one's going to be happy about that. And, no, and so I right. think the distribution is probably more of an issue than the total numbers, part one. And part two is they're going to have different crashes. They're going to be crashes. Well, a human driver would have never made that mistake. And if you can say, well, a human driver would have made the same mistake, maybe you, maybe that's palatable, right? But if you say no human would have been that stupid, those crashes are going to be a problem even if, even if autonomous vehicles are 10 times safer than human drivers. If every single crash is objectively stupid, you know, it's like, you got to be kidding me. It did what? That's still going to be a problem for the technology. Right. <clears throat> Self-driving car, is it applying makeup, eating breakfast and texting at the same time? Because I drove past that woman the other day. And yeah. I, I, and yet you didn't, you didn't see her in a crash, did you? Oh, no, I sped away from her. <laughs> well, well, so so another related topic to all this is that one of the reasons the roads are safe is not because humans are amazingly good drivers. They're really good, but they're not that good, and they misbehave, right? right. But other people compensate for the behavior. So the one of the things you don't hear the companies talking about is them compensating for mistakes made by other drivers. What you hear them is blaming other driver, human drivers for being imperfect. Well, we had this crash because human drivers are imperfect. Well, it turns out human drivers are imperfect. Get over it. What's your plan? And humans are really good at compensating for other drivers' mistakes. That's one of the reasons the outcomes are, are as good as they are. Not, not that I'm happy with the, the road fatalities, but if you look at the numbers, you know, it could be a whole bunch worse. And one of the reasons it's not, as, not worse is because humans compensate for other mistakes. You know, I was thinking of that as I was driving the other day, and I was being really attentive to what the other drivers were doing. And I noticed that a lot of times when you come to an intersection, you actually watch the eyes of the other drivers to see if they're if they're looking at you or if they're looking away. And you become much more cautious if their eyes are not being cast in your direction. Um, uh, so, point. yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. I also wanted to say before we get too far into this, it's a fantastic book. It oh, just thank you. brings up all kinds of great thoughts. And... Uh, 
And, you know, and, and it is such a great book that I, I had to notice there was a typo on one of the pages, but... Please, please send it to me and I'll fix novel. it. <laughs> the wonders of print-on-demand are I can change the typos on the fly. I, I do not have a basement full of these books printed already, so... <laughs> That's no, great. And I want to reiterate Fred's point uh, before we get too far into it as well, that I recommend this book. If we had a Center for Auto Safety Book Club, this would be the first book in it um, <laughs> at this point. And I, I want to recommend it to all of our safety friends and to manufacturers and to folks working in Congress, because it really addresses a lot of the issues that we've been trying to tackle for years now. And it does so in a very accessible way. And also, you know, it it leaves open the uncertainty that we have about the future of these vehicles, whether they can even achieve what a lot of people um, have claimed that they'll be able to. Um, so I, I highly recommend the book to every listener out there. And to be clear, when you're a safety guy, your 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 life is telling everyone why something might not work, right? And I get that. Uh, I really want to see this technology succeed, but if we're not mindful of all the ways it could fail, and then work to fix those ways, we're going to deploy something that does fail, and it's going to set the whole industry back. So it's important to be mindful of all the problems that can go wrong and fix them. And I, I spend a lot. How did I realize all these ways things can go wrong? Well, I've sort of seen them, and I and I help companies fix them, and and that's great. That's what I'm all about: helping fix. But you can't help fix if you don't know what to look for. In section ten point three, uh, you talked about ways of, of getting this technology into service, and in fact, you're talking about um, using utilities like UL4600 as a way of investigating the status of the vehicles, making sure the people respond to the safety cases. And uh, so, you know, it, it brought to mind our own position of looking at gated certification in which we've, we talked about it simplistically as a requirement that the autonomous vehicles go through kind of a learner's permit phase and a driver's license phase and then a mature driver's license phase. But really what it's all about is at each of those levels that there would be a critical examination of not only the past performance of the vehicle, but also its conformance to reasonable standards for safety and expectations that it would be safe as you expand the environment in which the vehicles are allowed to operate. And in fact, it's very close to what you were talking about in section 10.3. But if, you know, if you want, uh, maybe you could give a few words about that and also tell our listeners what a safety case is, because I, I think that may not be familiar to a lot of the people listening. Sure. Uh, remind me to come back to the safety case. I'm going to go go at the driver test first. <laughs> uh, it It seems intuitive to say, all right, well, we're going to make the car take a driver test and that'll prove it. It drives fine, but but there's actually a fundamental issue here. Driver tests won't make you safe. Testing does not make you safe. People have known this for decades. It sounds intuitive. Well, we tested it, so it must be okay. For software, it doesn't work because there's so many weird ways software can fail uh, that, that testing doesn't do it. Let me give you a, an everyday example. Uh, if you have a cell phone and you make a call on it, all right, and the call goes through, you can say, well, it makes calls. I tested it, right? But, um, and you could say open an app and the app opened and it did its thing. So I tested it. So it works fine. But have you ever had your cell phone freeze up and you had to reboot it? Of course. Okay. Can you make it do that on demand? No. <laughs> so if that, if your life depended on that cell phone, never ever freezing ever, 
for 100 million miles of driving, it never gets to freeze because then you die. That cell phone probably is not up to that task, but there's no testing that's going to show that to you in any reasonable amount of time because it only happens once in a while in certain circumstances. So that's why this technology is so difficult. Any computer technology has this issue of its life critical. So what we've learned is testing doesn't get you to safety. You have to do engineering rigor. You have to follow really good engineering practices to get to safety. And that includes testing, but it's only, it's only part of it. Sure. In terms we, of- we com- if I may, we completely agree with that. And yeah. that's why we've coupled this, this whole idea of testing with intensive investigation of the engineering background yeah. at the level of development that's appropriate for the vehicle and the environment in which people propose to operate the vehicle. Right. So that that's exactly right. That's why the safety standards, ISO 26262, ISO 21448, UL 4600, those kind of safety standards are so critical to know the engineering rigor was there. And by the way, I just rattled off some numbers. Uh, if you're not an automotive engineer, the fact I can rattle off these numbers calls into question my life choices at some times. But, you know, <laughs> if you're in the safety business, you just, those are all... Industry written thick stacks of paper. I said two six two six two is like twelve hundred pages or something. It's, I stopped counting a thousand pages. You owe forty six hundred around three hundred. They're they're really thick, very technical engineering documents. But they tell you here's how to know you got the software safe. And if you miss anything in these documents, you, you did you missed crossing some T's, you missed dotting some I's. Now you're putting yourself in in the public at risk. This stuff may not be as safe as it needs to be. The only way you know how to do safety, you know, why do why are airplanes safe? It isn't that air isn't Boeing and Airbus fly the airplanes around for a million miles and say, yeah, it looks good. It's because they do rigorous engineering and uh, organizations like the FAA check their work and you get mishaps like the 737 MAX because they didn't check their work, right? So, so that process matters. Uh, and in the car business, no one's checking their work. Uh, you know, they're not required to follow these standards. So that's really the big safety question here. Yeah, it seems each week I ask the both Fred and Michael some simple question and they always laugh at me and say, because there's no regulation around any of this stuff. Like there's no regulation around propellant and airbags and, and everything yeah, else. Yeah. And it seems with AVs, what they tell me is because I look at it as a consumer going, you know, my car has, you know, ADAS and I love it and it's so much fun. And they're just like, yeah, maybe it works. I don't, because no one tests it. There's no regulation. Is that the kind of, and, and you, I think you alluded to this earlier and, and your book definitely mentions it. Is that the big missing piece that there is no FAA type regulations like that apply to the airline industry or to train safety that the auto industry has just said, no, we're, we're going to self-certify, trust us. We've never done anything wrong. Is that? Well, there. well, they never done anything wrong. You can read the news about that, right? Exactly. <laughs> and to be clear, regulation doesn't prevent them from doing anything wrong. It just reduces the incident and, and makes it, uh, makes it much less likely, right? There's, if, if the checks and balances and transparency are how you get safety, if you take away the checks and balances, you take away the transparency in the other, like in the aviation regulate, regulatory regimes, the failures are because they compromise transparency and they compromise the checks and balances and they would, would have been working otherwise. In automotive, it's the only safety critical industry I know where in practice, the industry is not required to follow its own safety standards. And it's, 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 I'm going to say it again because it's shocking, right? The automotive industry, there is no requirement whatsoever to follow the own safety standards that they themselves wrote. No one's making them do this. And in practice, they talk a good game. They say, we do sort of stuff sort of like it. 
but the few times I've had the opportunity to pull back the, pull back the covers and find out what's inside, it's like, no, they weren't. You know, it's only a few percent. It wasn't anywhere close. Some companies try really hard. I know that some companies, in fact, do for practical purposes follow the standards, but don't they don't say that publicly. I know that some companies have have uh, good intentions and then run out of time and resources. And it's pretty clear some companies aren't even trying. Right? It's everything. And the regulators, so National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA. Well, I'm sure it gets talked about on this podcast on occasion. Uh, NHTSA does not require the industry to follow their own standards. And NHTSA does not do what in Europe they call type approval, which is NHTSA doesn't check the car before it goes on the road. You know, the manufacturers do what you said, self-certify, put it on the road, but they don't self-certify. Even that doesn't mean what some might think it means. They don't self-certify safety at all. There's no requirement for computer software. I'm going to call it software safety. That's a misnomer. It's actually computer-based system safety, but I'm going to say software safety because people are more familiar with that. I know what it means. Okay. But, you know, so there's no requirement for any software safety at all. That's completely at the manufacturer's discretion. Well, thank right? you. The only that. thing they self-certify is FMVSS, which is does your tire uh, low pressure indicator work and, and are your headlights bright enough? It has nothing to do with the software safety. I'm sure that has cheered everybody up. Thank you for that. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm ju- uh, well, I just like- a ray of sunshine. You know, what can I say? <laughs> it's good cocktail party chatter, I'm sure. <laughs> hey, uh, but I'm going to ask you to, to define two things, the safety yep. case and the safety performance indicator, because I've got a follow-up question that relates right. to that. Thanks for being back to the safety case. Um, I, you know what? I, we have enough time. Let me backtrack, because there's another one we dropped by the side, and then we might keep me on track. The driving test. Okay. Right. The thing about the driving test is you have to take the written test. You have to take the vision test. You have to do the skills test and an autonomous vehicle could, could one way or another do all that stuff. But the most important part of the test that no one ever really mentions because it's so obvious is the part where you produce your birth certificate <laughs> and you prove you're a 16 year old human being. Right. And that's a proxy for being able to predict what happens next by 16 you've reasoned out oh look there's a you know there's a rock falling off a cliff i think it's going to be in front of my car and i should probably stop before it's in front of my car i don't have to wait for it to be in front of my car to decide i see a landslide and it's a good idea to stop right now right things like this maturity judgment i know we all laugh about 16 year old drivers they are are actually pretty pretty dangerous but for my previous comment people compensate for them right and they learn but the, the problem is they do have maturity of judgment. They, they're good at knowing what the heck is that? I think I'll slow down. And what's the maturity test for an autonomous vehicle? What does that even mean? So people want to use a driving test analogy. That's the soft spot, which is why we get into what Fred was talking about, which is, well, instead of maturity of judgment, because we don't know how to measure that, or you know, instead go for engineering rigor that all the different scenarios have been tried out. And you know, that's part of the engineering process. So, so that, that was the driving test. For safety case, all right, a safety case, and I'm going to try and make it as as straightforward as I can and and stay out of the deep technical weeds here, but a safety case is is some written description of, okay, so tell me what you think safe means, tell me why you think you're safe, and show me some data so that I should believe you. You In other words, your system is acceptably safe for its intended operational environment. And you have some arguments, some reasons, an explanation, narrative, 
that is cohesive and is substantiated by evidence. So you can say, well, we drove a billion miles in exactly the same situations we're going to see in the real world. And in a billion miles, we saw no fatalities. So with high confidence, we're better than a human driver. Okay, you know, that would be nice, except as a pra- it's a practical impossibility. Who can drive a billion miles and all? And, and did you change the software? Oh, you have to reset the odometer to zero and all these things, right? So that's a safety case that the, the industry has been selling us that's never going to work. So instead, the safety case is more, well, we've done some rigorous engineering. We followed the safety standards we mentioned before with all the numbers. We followed the safety standards. We've done a lot of testing with human safety drivers. Uh, we've learned to anticipate how often surprises come and they've stopped coming so often. And we're with extremely high probability, even though we've never seen it before, we're really good at saying at least coming to a safe shutdown, all these kind of things. So a safety case is why are you safe? Explain to me why I should believe you're safe. Show me the data. And the the safety case is something that it's not like turning in a paper and then selling the cars. It's something that needs to continue to be made over the course of the vehicle's operation based on how it's performing. Well, well, that's that's a big change that's happening. So ISO 26262 requires a safety case uh, already. Uh, It's not as rigorous as as what I'm uh, advocating, but, but it requires a safety case. And it's what you said that you file the safety case the day the car shipped and then you sort of forget it. And in traditional cars where a human is there to deal with all the weird stuff, maybe that's okay. Because in a traditional car, you can think of all the things that might go wrong because all of them are inside the car. A fuel pump's going to fail or you're going to have a, a computer uh, a computer bit flip and you get some bad data, but you detect it, you fix it. All these kind of things you can anticipate in theory and fix. In practice, you don't even do that because there's recalls, right? If, if they did that perfectly, there wouldn't be recalls. Okay. But when you get into an autonomous vehicle, it's impossible to completely predict the outside world. And even if you did, it would change tomorrow with the new fashion style or or who knows, right? The world's going to change. So when you take the human out of the car, two things change. One is you lose that general purpose, that was weird, let me deal with it device because the human's asleep in the back, right? That was the whole point. Uh, so you lose your, your flexibility to deal with weird stuff the designers didn't think of. And, and the second one is you, you have this software that, that is not amenable to traditional certification, right? And then the world changes. It just brute forcing, it isn't going to work anymore. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to have continuous feedback from operation to say, well, we thought it was safe on the we good faith, best effort. We followed the standards. As far as we knew, it was safe the day we deployed it. So not I'm not advocating deploying unsafe cars. Let's be clear, right? They have to be as safe as you can possibly get, get according to all the engineering standards. And in good faith, you release a safe car. And then you find out the next day it wasn't as safe as you thought it was because there's something you never saw in testing. It's like, what the, you know, Kangaroos didn't know about kangaroos, right? Well, welcome to Australia, right? That's that's a real story that happened to one company, okay? Or or whatever, or or tumbleweeds, or there was just a tomato spill, and then there was an Alfredo spill the next day. That was pretty entertaining, right? There's all these things, <laughs> you know. It just I just didn't think of this, and and um, but our car was smart enough, and it shut down, but it was clogging up the highway because it didn't know what to do. So next time, we'll make sure it knows what to do. So that kind of feedback is going to be really important going forward, and it's going to be have to be for the life of the car. It's not going to be 
fire and forget, as they say, you know, it's going to, it's going to be, you're going to deploy it and you're going to have to track it for the life of the car to keep teaching the driver. Phil, before you get to safety performance indicator, I just want to tell our thoughtful listeners that you referred to something called ISO 26262. ISO stands for International Standards Organization, and ISO 26262 is the standard that was developed uh, in collaboration with all of the, essentially all of the automobile manufacturers to basically define the terms and, and conditions by which self-driving vehicles would operate. Is that correct? That sounds great. But you're, you're on those committees, same as I am. So you know all this stuff as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fred and I hang out on the standards committees, uh, <laughs> trying, trying to make the world a better place by strengthening the standards. So what is a safety performance indicator, Phil? All right. A safety performance indicator, the roots come from aviation. Uh, in aviation, when you are flying aircraft around, you have to do maintenance on a regular basis. You have to, um, there are all these things that you have to get right. You have to look at how often do engines fail in flight? Because if they fail a certain very low number, like once every 50,000 flight hours for in-flight shutdown, you know, those kind of numbers. And and the system is designed to handle those. And there's a reason you have two engines and, and all these things. And, and it's still safe enough, right? All that's been taken into account. But if all of a sudden you find out the failures are happening more often than you expected, all of those, that safety case for why you thought you were safe isn't valid anymore. You know, your engine's failing every 10 hours instead of every 50,000. Well, you know, you're going to eventually lose both engines if that keeps up. Uh, and you better do something about it before the bad thing happens. So that's the aviation background. In UL4600, which is a system-level safety standard for autonomous vehicles, we took the idea of safety performance indicators and expanded it to not just be operations, but the entire safety case. So um, in the safety case, here are the reasons why we think you're safe. A safety performance indicator gets associated with each claim. Now, let me explain claim. Claim is, I think I'm safe. One of the reasons I'm safe is because I detect and avoid passengers. And, and how do I do that? Well, I'm able to detect the passengers such a certain very high fraction of the time. And then once I detect them, I'm able to anticipate where they're going to be a high fraction of the time. And then once I know where they're going to be, I either stop or I maneuver them around them. And so each of those is a claim. I maneuver around them when I need to, those sorts of things. And a safety performance indicator is a number you attach saying, well, you're never going to be perfect, but you're going to be really, really good. What's the number? How often is it okay to not see a pedestrian with a camera? The number is not zero because in the real world, nothing's perfect. And you say, all right, I can, I can not see a pedestrian with a camera once every 100,000. I'm making up a number that may not sure. be the right number, right? Once every 100,000. But that's okay because I got a LIDAR and the LIDAR will pick up the slack. Great. But then you say, well, you drive around, you say, you know, I've noticed that I'm not missing pedestrians once every 100,000. I'm missing pedestrians once every 10,000. How do I know this? Because my LIDAR is telling me all these times I didn't see the pedestrian with the camera, but the LIDAR sees it. It's once every 10,000. Does that mean I'm going to have a crash tomorrow? Yeah, no, probably not. I mean, you might get unlucky, but once every 10,000 is still pretty good. But the math's not going to work out. You're not going to get to 100 million miles without a fatality if your cameras are 10 times worse than you thought. So the safety performance indicator is a way of saying, I made this claim in my safety case and it turns out it's not true. Let me go revisit the safety case and fix it before something bad happens. Thank you. And, and so um, my follow-up question here is about state safety inspections. Now, all of us with uh, with our cars, we bring them in once a year, 
they check the brakes, they check the lights, they, they check all the safety critical equipment that's accessible to them. So we've been wondering, how in the world are you going to do this for autonomous vehicles? Because the safety critical information includes both the logic, the data processing, the mechanical systems in the car. And, and so how in the world can a mechanic at a, your local auto repair shop be um, qualified and enabled to test this entire safety critical system? Now, when you talked about the safety performance indicators, you did a great job of talking about how an individual's car experience is related to, but distinct from the SPI associated with the fleet. So the question at the end of this complex dissertation is, Would is there any relationship between accessibility of safety performance indicators for the fleet and what an individual inspector might be looking for or um, use to pass judgment on the safety of an individual autonomous vehicle? The vehicle may have never experienced a particular failure forces the SBI is blink red, yet that car would be associated with the SBI that's showing potential for catastrophe. That's a complex question. Does that make any sense? Uh, sure. I, <laughs> Anthony, what do you, Fred broke up a couple times. How would you like to handle that? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's a tough one, Fred. Uh, yeah, it was weird. You broke up a couple of times, then you came back and your audio sped up really fast. Um, <laughs> was, you want to ask the short version, Fred? Yeah, what the, the short, I think <laughs> sure. the short version of the question was, um, you know, you get your car inspected every year for brakes, exhaust and whatnot. But with software, how is, you know, Joe, the mechanic going to be able to check that? What's going to be in place? Well, sure. The other, but the other part of that is, if there is a safety performance indicator that is blinking red because of other cars' experience, should that bear on the safety of the car that's being inspected, even if they've never experienced that particular problem? Okay, so there, there's two different questions here, and, and I like the way the way you brought this up because it, it really teases apart. There's safety performance indicators, which are, as you said, a fleet-wide uh, indication of some problem, and it basically is telling you there's a design problem, that the design doesn't match the real world in some sense. And it doesn't mean any particular car is going to have a crash. You know, it, it amounts to uh, a software defect is what it amounts to, but it's not because someone made a mistake or someone wrote a bug. It's because the design doesn't match reality. That's going to happen on a regular basis. So the companies just have to keep up and issue the changes. And that that's just going to be part of the life cycle of these. But if you have a safety performance indicator that at the fleet level says, hey, all the cars of this type have this problem, the only thing you can fix on that car is by changing the software for all the cars. You know, there's nothing broken on that car other than it needs the new version. And our cell phones get new software versions due to defects all the time. So it's going to be like that. But the other half of the question is, how do mechanics know this thing is safe? Part of the software is going to have to be doing an internal inventory of what's going on with the car and knowing everything's okay. Now, we already do this on emissions. So on emissions, Many of these cars have gotten to the point that the tailpipe test doesn't really tell you unless something's really, really, really bad, right? They uh, plug into the onboard diagnostics port to ask the car, hey, what's the, how's the oxygen sensor doing? How are all these things doing? Because the if the emissions are bad enough at the tailpipe to even register, things have really gone wrong. So they ask the car, how are you feeling today, right? That's part of the test these days. And for safety, it's going to be the same thing. 
there's going to be safety performance indicators for fleet feedback, but there are also going to be car health checks that in some case mirror the SPIs, but in, in some cases are completely different. And the car health checks are going to be, hey, you know, you have two computers uh, and one of them you never use, but it's there in case the primary fails and you really want it to be there when you need it. Uh, when's the last time you did a self-test on the second computer? Let's do a self-test now and make sure that computer is really working. So the safety inspection is going to be that kind of thing. And the mechanic's not going to sit there and, and do the test. These are all going to be automated procedures. And more likely, there's going to be a standard readout, uh, a health report. Uh, you know, you go to the doctor and they do all the blood work and you get your lab tests back. It's going to be more like that. Hmm. Well, this is interesting. It kind of uh, leads into uh, my, one of my favorite sections of your book, mainly because I love the title, uh, The Moral Crumple Zone. I did not invent that. that. I know you didn't invent that. <laughs> it's great. I love it. I it, love it. <laughs> it sounds like it should be a Dead Kennedys album. Um, but there's a section in there. He said, uh, drivers are told they are responsible for safety, including compensating for design flaws and technical malfunctions that may occur, which it just it seems like it's putting the onus completely on the driver. The driver is always at fault. So I think you gave an example of if there's a dirty sensor covering a, a camera and whatnot, and yeah. that system goes down. So the manufacturers, are they taking this stance that, hey, it's not our fault? Well, right, well answer. they're being very coy about this topic, all right? And, and I'm going to characterize this as a moral hazard. Uh, the, the issue is it's really, really hard to make an autonomous vehicle that's safe. And especially when you have a shared responsibility that there's a human driver and there's automated features and, and they share responsibility, uh, it's very easy for the manufacturers to say, oh, that's the human driver's problem. We're going to let them deal with it. And maybe that's okay. Maybe it's not. The question you have to ask is, is that a reasonable demand to make of the human driver? And it's very easy for companies trying to, to shield themselves from liability to push stuff onto the human driver that is beyond what is reasonable to expect. Uh, we've known since the 1940s that asking a person to supervise something boring does not work out well. After 20 or 30 minutes, they're just going to lose performance. And it doesn't matter who you are or how good you are. Everyone's going to lose performance after something like 30 minutes. And at some point, you lose enough performance, you're not safe. Maybe it's a little longer than 30 minutes, but but that, that's where the number is. We've known that. That was a, a post-World War II study on radar operators. But we learned that in the 90s on the couple iterations ago of autonomous vehicles. There was a big project in the 90s, the one, the one where I got involved, where they said, yeah, as soon as you take away steering for the driver, they're going to drop out. They're, they're going to have trouble paying attention. So this has been done for a long time. The, the the new kids had to discover this for themselves, apparently. But if they'd asked the, the old stars in the 90s, we would have told them, all right? We know this is an issue. Okay, so what's your plan? If your plan is, um, we're going to make sure the driver remains alert, and we're going to warn the driver and tell the driver you're not alert, and you shouldn't be driving, and they choose to drive anyway, you know, maybe you want to blame the driver for that because they had fair warning or we're asking the driver to do something, we're asking the driver to keep steering and we're going to do throttle and we expect them to pay attention to distance because they're already in the loop doing steering. You know, maybe that's reasonable, right? But saying, hey, um, this car drives itself, but if it crashes, it's your fault, so pay attention, in practice is not going to be effective. People are not going to pay attention. Or even even worse, saying, uh, you know, we promise this car will never crash except this and um, 
And so pay attention in case you need to, but you, you know, you can, you're allowed to look away from the road, but if it crashes, it's your fault for not noticing it was going to crash, which is so some of the level three stories sort of sound like, right. You know, that gets closer to a more crumple zone that you're asking someone to do something that, that is beyond a reasonable human ask. So what, what's the solution? I mean, GM and Ford, they have kind of their, uh, they're self-driving, uh, I, that's not what they call it, but you know, they'll mm-hmm. only operate on certain roads and they have them mapped right. out and they have the internal facing camera to see, Hey, are you actually facing and paying attention to the road? Mm-hmm. Is that a decent compromise or well, maybe here's what we don't know is the camera. And so the camera is looking at you, making sure your eyes on the road. This is an excellent idea, right? Right. But what's the frequency of the lights are on, but nobody's home from someone who has their eyes on the road. And I want to know that number. And if that number is, no, really, if the camera's effective, it's cool. All right, then fine. And if the number is, oh, yeah, that happens all the time, but we can we can say it's their fault because our eyes are on the road, even though we know drivers fall asleep with their eyes open all the time. And, right. and I, I'm not making an accusation here. I don't know the answer to that question, but that's the question. So we really want data from these different manufacturers so everyone can actually learn from this. And yeah. of course, I'm being Pollyanna because yeah. that will never happen. Yeah. Now, now I, I know some of the engineers in, in all these companies and, and the folks who are doing that, I think they're doing it because they're trying to do the right thing. Uh, so this, this is really good. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm glad to see they're taking driver monitoring seriously. This is super important. Uh, but, you know, and eventually, hopefully they've collected data and they have this answer. And if so, great. But with our regulatory system, there's no transparency. So we'll have to just trust them. And if there are bad actors who aren't playing by those same rules, it degrades the trust for the whole industry. So oh. that, that's one of the issues. Yeah. So well, I think we we'll think we only have you for a few more minutes. Um, Michael, what uh, I know you had a couple questions. So you want to jump in? Oh, and he's on mute. He does this all the time. We made him this week. We made him buy a microphone because he'd always just sound like he was talking out of a tin can. I understand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that um, I was really interested in was the, and, and we've kind of covered this, but it was the, um, with the safety performance indicators, you know, they, they, they allow for a process um of I believe you described it as defeasible reasoning where we're constantly able to update them and um, constantly basically able to continue to make a safety case as things change in the real world. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, do you see any role for a government regulator like NHTSA to, to be on the receiving end of reports when certain SPIs are invalidated or proven false Um by manufacturer testing or in the fleet operating on the roads is there is is that is there something there that could you know be kind of an early warning system that would tip government off to problems in an av fleet even when the manufacturer might not be that uh uh willing to do so well transparency is always good uh let, let me start with independence is what matters if you don't have independent oversight, you're not going to get safety, full stop. That's just, we've learned that in so many industries over so many years. If there's no independence, you don't get safety. And, and that's the biggest issue with the automotive industry now is that the independence 
if it exists at all, is very severely constrained. It's inside a company, and there's pressure. There's too many pressures to keep them independent, right? So, uh, what should be happening is inside the company, there should be an SPI monitor to say, "Hey, uh, you know, all these alarms went off that your safety case has been invalidated. You know, you said this would never happen, and yet here you are. It just happened. What's the deal here?" And, and to be clear, weird things will happen. All right, it happened once in a billion miles. Okay, maybe no big deal. Nothing's perfect, right? But it was supposed to happen once every 10 million and it happened every 100,000. Wow, something's wrong. The world changed. Our analysis is wrong. The world changed. Uh, who knows? But something's wrong. We got to deal with it. Now, that that happens. It doesn't mean you take every car off the road. You probably still have some time, but you have to take action. You have to respond. It's sort of like the recall system on steroids, except instead of waiting for the reports to come in and the, and the police uh, fatality reports to come in, you're actively out there looking for bad stuff so you get ahead of it, right? And then inside the car company, they should be doing this. They should have an in independence inside the car company or outside dealer's choice there because because we self-certify. There should be an independent group who's in charge of keeping on top of this stuff. And I would think NHTSA would want to see the reports being sent to the independent group. You know, why, why wouldn't you know? I, you know, oh, something went wrong. Well, of course something went wrong. It's a Tuesday. This is just how the world is. That is the, the question isn't, did something go wrong? The question is, is your process for dealing it working? I, I've had these discussions, interesting discussions that some people in the industry say, oh, we never want to write down anything bad because it looks bad. But then I actually talk to people who are much more sophisticated. I talk to lawyers who are more sophisticated that are advocating for the car companies. They're like, no, no. It's okay to write down bad stuff. What's not okay is to write down bad stuff and then blow it off, mm, right? So right. if you have a system that's writing down the unfortunate things that happen, and mind you, these aren't crashes. So you're, this SPIs get you ahead of crash. You're not waiting for a crash. You're just waiting for something weird to happen and you get on top of it before the crash happens. That makes you the good guy as long as you're following up. So if I were NHTSA, I'd want to see the flow of this data saying, hey, you know, look at us. These bad things happened. It was within range of what we expected. The world's not perfect, but we're getting on top of it. And here's why we fixed it. You know, this is a this is a positive story for everyone. And that's a way for NHTSA to keep its finger on the pulse to make sure the companies aren't staying on top of things. And nobody needs to die for this system to work, which is a really stark difference from what we have now. So more regulation, good oversight. And well, I, well, well I'll be, yeah. let me be careful about the more regulation, right? <laughs> so more trying. oversight, more oversight, yes. Mm -hmm. For regulation, uh, asking NHTSA to invent standards for the car industry is problematic. The car industry will tell you that. It is, right? Sure. But but they don't need to. So in late 2020, there was an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking in PRM for those who follow this, right? That NHTSA said, hey, we have a plan for how to regulate. We're going to make the industry follow the own safety standards that they themselves wrote. What do you think? And that has just right. been languishing ever since late 2020. But it's like, oh, that, that makes sense to me. I don't know why we're not doing it, but it's languishing. So that's where we are in regulation. So if the regulation is make the industry follow their own safety standards, to me, that sounds like a great idea. If the regulation is NHTSA is going to tell them how to build cards, you know, not so much. Right. I, I want to point out at this point that uh, Phil is the principal behind the standard called Underwriters Laboratory 4600. I've had the privilege of, of working on that a little bit with Phil. And I think that if UL 4600 is implemented as a process for certifying the safety 
or at least examining the safety of autonomous vehicles, there would be very little need for additional regulation beyond the, the requirement that companies do some kind of certification process or self-assessment process associated with UL 4600 or whatever its equivalent might be in the marketplace. Well, th thanks, Fred. I, I agree. The point of UL 4600 is if you do everything in there, you're probably in good shape on safety. And one of the things regulators could do is say, look, you have to follow that standard and that standard requires you to generate some paper and you have to show us the paper. And and maybe NHTSA doesn't even judge them on whether they like the paper or not. They judge them on whether they're following the process and whether they got someone independent and competent to validate the paperwork. And they're just sort of there to, to keep score and make sure things are happening the way they're supposed to be. That would be a, a pretty reasonable regulatory approach, I think. All right, so full self-driving cars within the next year. Um, That's not happening. <laughs> I mean, it's, as we discussed, it's happening in little dribs and drabs, and that's cool, but right. it's not going to be coast to coast, go to sleep in the back, wake up in a different city anytime soon. I don't know. This guy keeps telling me it's going to happen. So <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Uh, we'd like to thank again, Phil Copeman, um, author of How uh, How Safe is Safe Enough, an excellent book. We highly recommend it for everyone to read it. Uh, thanks again for, for coming on and, and sharing your knowledge on this, this very complex issue. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Thanks. My question after reading Phil's book, one of the things that popped in my head is um, automatic emergency braking. How do you crash test a car that has automatic emergency braking? Because in theory, if it's working, the car shouldn't crash. Right. But you can do it by looking at the rate of deceleration and the distance from an obstacle that the car achieves. So uh, there are ways of testing it. But do, does NHTSA or... As intended. Does NHTSA or IIHS, do they do those, you know, where they try and drive the car into a, a, a wall or something like that? With well, if they're, if they're measuring, if they're trying to cheerily measure the impact forces, they're not going to have the automatic emergency braking on. And a lot of times the vehicle will be on a sled or it's, you know, it's oh, not right. really operating itself. So it's, it's depending on the test, there's a lot of different, different tests, but, um, I would assume they're going, I mean, it seems like it to me, it would be a safety risk to have the automatic emergency braking functioning when you're trying to crash the vehicle into something to collect measurements. Well, yeah, because when a crash test occurs, it occurs at a given speed. So, uh, you know, this somehow would have to mute the, or disable the emergency, the AEB in order to have a contact at the speed that's required. All right. Well, that's good to know. Um, and actually, some of the tests are held at mm. speed or would be at speeds that are not enough of them, but some tests would be at speeds where AEB is not even functioning. I mean, we're not even seeing AEB work over around 35, 37 miles per hour at all in any cars, which is not really what you think of when you think of automatic emergency braking. It's really only working in the lower speed collisions. And that's going to be great when we get pedestrian AEB working. But for now, you know, it's it's not stopping you from crashing into the back of a semi on the highway at 70 miles an hour. Well, I know what the rest of my day is going to consist of. Driving slow. <laughs> Curling up in the fetal position again because all you guys just scare the hell out of me constantly. 
Do we have anything for the the Tao of Fred this week? Yes, we were going to discuss a minimal risk condition. Mm. Welcome to the Tao of Fred. Wait, I don't have to do that. There's a voiceover for that. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. So um, we'll talk about minimal risk condition, which is a term that's pivotal for a lot of the regulations associated with autonomous vehicles. So, Anthony, uh, given the name of minimal risk condition, do you think it's a condition that is associated with a minimal risk? That's what I would assume. I think I had that on my dating profile, too. Yeah, well, you know, that's a common misconception about the term minimal risk condition. So, if you go to the definition in... uh, SAE J3016, which is uh, available to anybody who wants it free of charge, download at SAE International or SAE.com. Um, it awesome says a stable stopped condition. Yeah. <laughs> a stable stopped condition to which a user or an ADS may bring a vehicle after performing the dynamic driving task fallback in order to reduce the risk of a crash when a given trip cannot or should not be continued. Holy cow, that's a mouthful. So <laughs> what's wrong with that? Well, the first thing that's wrong with that is it's not a condition, it's a process that they describe, right? So a lot of stuff has to happen and decisions have to be made. And so it's, you know, a, a condition typically is, this is hot, this is cold, this is moving, this is not moving. Uh, so it's it's really a misnomer. Um, Second thing is that it's elective because it says to which a user or an ADS may bring a vehicle. So it's not a confirmed, uh, it's not even a confirmed process that will bring a vehicle to some kind of safe harbor. And um, also it says it's to reduce the risk of a crash. Now, when you think of that for a moment, if you're in a car that's going over a cliff, and the windows are open, then as you hurtle towards the earth, if you close the windows, then you have, according to this, achieved a minimal risk condition because you have reduced the risk of a crash, or at least reduced the risk of your ejection from the car. Um, But that's hardly a safe condition to be in. So there are a lot of problems with this. The unfortunate thing is that most people just hear the title and they think it know what it means. So legislatures all around the country have been writing this into their regulations for testing autonomous vehicles and saying that at some point the vehicles have to achieve a minimal risk condition, thinking that by writing that into the legislation, they are requiring that the vehicles achieve some kind of safe harbor if certain things happen. So if the control system fails, for example, they want the vehicle to go to a minimal risk condition, thinking that that means that the passengers will be safe. Unfortunately, that's not at all what it means. Um, If you go on to different parts of the definition, it actually goes on to say, automatically return the vehicle to a dispatching facility. So it's, it's not even stopping. It's kind of stopping, sort of, kind of. Um, So there are a lot of problems with this. Uh, We have been very active in discussing this with the SAE. Uh, SAE used to stand for Society for Automotive Engineers. 
Unfortunately, they've decided to go upscale, so SAE now means SAE. Oh. And, they call, and they call the organization SAE International. I think there, there's a rationale for that, but never mind. SAE <laughs> J3016. Um, what we've done is after weeks, literally weeks of discussions, the term minimal risk condition will not appear in the next edition of SAE J3016. Instead, what's going to appear is something called a mitigated risk condition. And it will be very specific to say that a mitigated risk condition is a safe stopped condition, period. So that everybody knows exactly what it means. The problem that is being solved now is that the term will now be connected to what a simple English language interpretation of the title means. So people can go on from there and say that if they have a regulation that is, you know, needs to be consistent with bringing a vehicle to a mitigated risk condition associated with a failure of some kind, then that vehicle will be safe. It'll be in a place where nobody's going to run into it, hopefully, that the passengers are, don't have to worry about a you know, somebody crashing into the vehicle, and that it's unambiguous with respect to what has to happen next. So if you've got a vehicle that goes into a minimal risk condition, a tow truck has to be called, or, you know, emergency personnel have to be called, or something has to happen associated with the mitigated risk condition. Now, the reason we went with that name is because in a lot of documents, minimal risk condition had been truncated to MRC, and so we wanted to make sure, because people don't like writing all those words, you know, it's a real burden. Sure. So uh, we wanted to make sure that if documents refer to MRC, it'll still be consistent with the next edition of SAE J3016, and the reference will still be valid. So that's what mitigated minimal risk condition is all about. That's why it will no longer be used. Unfortunately, it's still abroad in the world, and People are using it with complete and total misunderstanding. Now, a cynic might think, and I know none of us are cynics, a cynic might think that this is an intention of the automotive companies to make sure that they could basically do whatever they wanted and still say that they were consistent with a minimal risk condition. Of course, we're not cynics, so we think what really happened is a lot of engineers were arguing over words and came up with, uh, you know, a bad set of words to describe a condition that nobody really had defined very well. But that's probably a separate discussion. Minimal, minimal risk condition. If you have trouble sleeping at night, minimal risk condition. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by George Orwell. Well, thanks for elucidating, illuminating our, our listeners uh, and, and for helping me skip melatonin tonight. <laughs> If you want to skip melatonin for a really long time, get a copy of the ISO 262662 and start reading that. How thick is that? Because I can just smack it against my skull and that might help me sleep. That would. It's thick enough to do that. Now, unfortunately, right. I think it comes in soft cover, but never mind. You can well, you can bind it. You know, I, yeah, <laughs> I, can, I can wrap it in steel. <laughs> But thank you. All right. Well, thank you. I'd <laughs> thank like to thank our listeners, as always, for enjoying our uh, discussion here. 
Yeah, uh, thank listeners and really thank Michael for finally investing in a microphone so he no longer sounds like he's talking into a tin can. He sounds beautiful. He doesn't. Thank you. No, no. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.